Welcome to the Weekly Insight Podcast, where we break down the noise of the week and help you understand the psychology of the markets with your host, Andrew Dore at Insight Wealth Group. Good morning. Thank you for joining me today and welcome to the latest edition of the Weekly Insight Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Andrew Dore. I'll start like I normally do and just remind you that what you're about to hear today should not be construed as individual investment advice, but instead is just our thought and our mindset on what's going on in the market today. We hope it's useful to you. But if you need to discuss it with a financial advisor, we'd encourage you to do so. With that, first of all, it's been a little bit of time since we've been together. I'd like to uh, apologize for that. It's been about two weeks. Had to take the last couple weeks off from the podcast. Had some commitments over the weekends, which is usually when I do the podcast recording. So I hope you've been able to see the latest edition of the Weekly Insight Memo, which goes out. But I haven't had a chance to upload a podcast. So sorry about that. With that, though, there, there has been a lot that's gone on that we've covered in those last two memos, certainly. We had the Fed's interest rate policy decision here a week and a half ago. That's really been the name of this podcast. I think I'm going to change it from the weekly insight to inflation, Fed, and recession because that's what everybody wants to talk about. That's what we've been talking about a lot, really, for most of this year. Those themes have absolutely dominated the markets, and they've dominated the commentary on CNBC and the Wall Street Journal and everywhere else. But now we're starting to see what I would argue is some stabilizing interest inflation situation, some stabilization on Fed policy. Things seem to be settling down a little bit. The S&P 500 is up 8% over the last 30 days. It's up nearly 12% from its bottom in June. So we're starting starting to see some good improvement there. That gives us an opportunity to step back and to step away from the inflation, interest rates, recession, news cycle, and start looking out into the future. You know, what are some of the things that we're focusing on? What are some of the things we should be thinking about, we should be worrying about, we should be excited about as we move forward? So I wanted to break down two of those this week. They're two big issues that are on the horizon. They've been in the news, certainly in the last couple of weeks, and the first of which is Taiwan, the second of which is the fall election season. It's hard to believe, but it's almost upon us. So let's take a dive into both of those. So on Taiwan, and you're going to have to forgive me, I've always been a little bit of a history buff. I do want to sit back and break down where this whole Taiwan-U.S.-China relations situation began so that everybody understands it, because our policy on Taiwan has not really substantively changed for more than 40 years. It's actually fascinating. Both parties have had bipartisan consensus that this policy of, quote, strategic ambiguity is the right decision. But where does that come from? And it really goes all the way back to World War II. Back in World War II, towards the end of World War II, Franklin Delano Roosevelt talked about the four policemen. He talked about the four countries in the world that were going to be the great powers that would lead the world forward. And those four countries were the United States and Great Britain in the West and the USSR and China in the East. And those four powers, along with France, would then end up making up the permanent members of the UN Security Council. They have veto power over any action that's taken, the UN, but especially at the UN Security Council. But just over four years later, that whole issue got upended because at the time, Instead of being the People's Republic of China, the PRC, it was the Republic of China. And the Republic of China was led by Chiang Kai-shek, who was the leader prior to World War II. He was the leader of the resistance against the Japanese in World War II. And he was the leader of the Chinese nation coming out of World War II. But he was challenged by Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, and the Communist Party, a communist uprising in China, which eventually, four years after the end of World War II, was successful. And Chairman Mao forced Chiang Kai-shek 
and his allies out of China, and they took refuge on the island of Taiwan. And a stalemate has really ensued ever since. When Chiang Kai-shek got to Taiwan, he said that he was the real government of the nation of China, the government in exile. Obviously, Mao disagreed sitting in Beijing, but that really has been the status quo since. But the U.S. policy here has fluctuated over time. For a long time, we did not recognize the Chinese government, the People's Republic of China. We recognized Chiang's government in exile in Taiwan as the true Chinese government. And so for in 1955, we signed a security agreement with Chiang promising to provide security assistance and support. It took 24 years after that, from 1955 to 1979, after years of hard work by both the Chinese, but also by Presidents Nixon, Ford, and Carter, before we normalized relations with the People's Republic of China. In doing so, that's when we began this era of strategic ambiguity. We recognized the People's Republic of China, the Communist Party, as the true rulers of mainland China. In exchange for that, we said, you know, we're not going to mess with you in Taiwan, but we're going to support Taiwan. We're going to have this kind of strategic ambiguity. That vague policy has been in place really since 1979. And it's worked. It's worked well. But in the last few weeks, there's been a particular flare-up that has caused the media, and the Chinese particularly, to get a little excited. And that was Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan last week. It ended with Chinese missile tests in the Strait of Taiwan over the weekend. We shouldn't fool ourselves, however. Nancy Pelosi didn't add heat to this fire. It wasn't her trying to rile people up, and certainly wasn't her trying to rile China up, although she has a pretty strong history of standing up against the People's Republic of China, going back to the Tiananmen Square incident issue back in 1989. But what she did was, I would argue, a very well thought out and planned response to a particularly increasingly aggressive Beijing policy towards Taiwan. Current chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, Chairman Xi, has really been increasingly frank and increasingly aggressive over the last few years about how he intends to oversee, as he calls it, the reunification of China and Taiwan. But he's also been very clear that he intends to do it by choice or by force, but it will be done. So we've seen the Chinese military start taking more aggressive steps. We've seen certainly the diplomatic path that the Chinese have taken get more aggressive. And all of this is coming at a time where China's starting to feel its oats as the second most powerful, or they would argue maybe the most powerful nation in the world, but certainly the second largest economy in the world. It's also coming at a time when, where the Russian-Ukraine conflict is distracting the world over in Eastern Europe. And I think it's very clear that Washington wanted China to get a signal that we are not distracted by that, that we intend to defend our ally. President Biden actually said as much. It was the first time a U.S. president has ever said this. In May, he was asked if the U.S. would defend Taiwan at a press conference, and his quote was, yes, that is the commitment we have made. So what does this mean for markets? Because that's what you're here for, right? Not a history lesson on China and Taiwan. I think it's hard to say today. Interestingly, the rhetoric over the Pelosi trip last week was really not enough to shake the markets. The markets actually ended last week up about 35 basis points, which is interesting considering there were literally leaks from the Chinese government that maybe they would shoot Nancy Pelosi's plane down. Not a good idea. But really, the market's reaction was, eh, y'all have been doing this for a while. No big deal. I don't know. Conflict, a real conflict, 
between the world's two biggest economies would certainly give markets market makers pause. It would certainly be a much bigger deal than what we have going on in Russia and Ukraine right now. And I think the Chinese are beginning to question whether or not they could get away with it. Would the U.S. be willing to stand up or is the U.S. going to back down? It's hard to say. I don't think this is an issue that is worth panicking about. But I think as we start to see the pressures ease on inflation, on interest rates, Maybe to some degree on Russia and Ukraine, we started to see grain shipments leaving Ukraine this week, which is great news. As some of those issues start to let off a little bit, this is one that, while it isn't a panic issue, bears watching in the coming weeks and months. Because the Chinese have been clear. They have literally written and spoken their policy. They intend to reunite the mainland of China with the island of Taiwan. And how they will do that is something we're going to have to watch very, very closely to make sure it doesn't cause us to get brought into a rift between the two countries. So that's one issue that I think we really have to watch. It's one that we put on our risk scale. The other issue, as much as it pains me to talk about, is actually one I put on maybe it's good for us. Uh, scale, and that is the upcoming election season. My clients know this, maybe not all of the listeners uh, in the Weekly Insight know this, but my clients know this, and that is that my past history, long time ago, before I used to, be, before I got into the financial services industry, was in politics, campaign politics. I worked as a political consultant for several campaigns, three presidential campaigns over the years. And I'm a bit disillusioned, as I think many of you are that are listening today. I do think, you know, the founders might have been playing a mean joke on us when they said, you know, we're going to lock you into elections every two years. Because, man, it just seems like election season is never ending. Like it or not, though, the election season is upon us. I always find it interesting. We start to see some very creative legislation around election season. And no clearer evidence of that could be found than the current Inflation Reduction Act. And just so, since this isn't a visual medium, I'm using big air quotes when I say Inflation Reduction Act that is being debated or when, when this is being recorded, it's been approved by the Senate and is waiting for passage in the House. This bill, which is the latest version of the Build Back Better bill that was proposed by Biden over a year ago, it was, I think, $3.3 trillion of big time spending to rebuild the nation, according to President Biden, is really likely to pass. I think we're going to get it through the House. That decision was made really when Manchin and Cinema came to the table last week. They've been the linchpins in nearly every piece of legislation the Democrats have passed in the last 18 months. Very important for them to be on board to get anything done right now in Washington, D.C. But I think this bill is a very fitting example of what's going on with election season because despite its name, the Inflation Reduction Act, it doesn't do diddly to reduce inflation, or at least not in the interim, right? Not in a way that the average American is going to look back and go, wow, that helped. They're not going to see that. But they can now claim, the Democrats will now be able to claim a win on a major party policy, and they're also going to be able to say they've been fighting inflation. So it's a win-win. When I say major party policy uh, priority, those are the things like clean energy that they've been debating, Medicare, probably one of the best things in this bill, frankly. I think there is some good legislation in this bill. They are allowing Medicare to begin negotiating drug prices. I think that is the world's biggest no-brainer. For the last God knows how many years, drug companies have been able to come to Medicare, the federal government, with an unlimited checkbook and say, here's how much you're going to pay for our drug with no ability for the government to negotiate that rate. That is just absurd, right? It is a huge win for the pharma lobby that they've had for years. Uh, Politicians have protected that for years for 
Yeah, well, I know why, because they get big checks from these pharma companies. Allowing them to finally negotiate prices is a no-brainer. And it's great news. I think it's going to be good for a lot of people who listen to this podcast. And the other thing is the bill more than pays for itself. Depending on the math you use, it's going to actually generate 100 to $300 billion of deficit reduction as well. But don't let anybody fool you. It is not an inflation bill. This is an election bill. It's election season. It's silly season. This is what they do. So you've heard me talk. Well, you probably haven't heard me talk about it on the podcast, but the readers of the Weekly Insight have certainly seen me write about it, which is that previous elections, the markets love it when we have divided government. The results back up that statement. There's a, a, an interesting chart in the Weekly Insight this week. I'd encourage you to look at it. It breaks down the market performance over the last 120 years based upon the split of who controls the White House, who controls the Senate, and who controls the House. The best performance consistently is when the Democrats control the White House, the Democrats control the Senate, and the Republicans control the House. Average annualized return, about 11 and a quarter percent per year. When the Democrats control the White House and the Republicans control both houses of Congress, about nine and a half percent. So there's a really strong evidence to say that divided government with a Democrat in the White House has historically been what the market has liked the best. It's worked well. So while it may seem like it today, we do not actually have divided government. I think this is important to remember. The Democrats actually control the White House and both houses of Congress, despite the fact that they have razor thin margins. But any indication that there would be further indica- further division of power and further gridlock, that would be seen very, very favorably by the market. The market loves it when Washington can't actually do anything, when Washington gets tied up in knots for a couple years in between elections and can't actually get anything done, because at least then the market knows these are the rules of the game, this is how things are going to work, this is how businesses are going to be taxed, and we can charge forward with it. And that's pretty much what we're seeing today. I definitely think it's what we're going to be seeing if we do see some sort of split Congress coming out of this election. All due credit to President Biden and the Democrats. They've had a pretty good few weeks here between the, air quotes, Inflation Reduction Act, the action that they took against al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, you name it. There have been some things that have actually been going quite well for this White House over the last couple of weeks. And we also know they're going to get credit, just like they got the blame for inflation going up for the last several months, which I would argue wasn't exactly all their fault, but that's a much larger, longer conversation. They're also going to get the credit for when inflation does drop, and inflation is going to drop between now and the election. So that is something they're going to be able to put in their piggy bank and be able to say to the American people, look, we did something, even if it was an Inflation Reduction Act that didn't really do anything to reduce inflation. But despite that, despite the fact that the Democrats have seemingly shored up their position a little bit, there is still an exceedingly small likelihood that the Democrats would retain control of both the House and the Senate. In fact, I would argue that the Senate is a toss-up right now. But the House is almost certainly a loss. I don't think there is any way the Democrats can can continue to control the House. Pollster Nate Silver. Now, a lot of these pollsters get a lot of crap anymore. Even the pollsters have become a partisan issue. But Nate Silver, who runs 538, he put out a probability analysis last week. And the way he breaks it down is he says, out of 100 different scenarios, how many times will X happen? How many times will Y happen? And when he breaks it down, he only sees there being a 20 and 100 chance or 20% chance that the Democrats will win both chambers of Congress in November. There's an 80% chance, broken pretty equally, 
between the Republicans winning both chambers, he's showing that at about 41% odds, and the Democrats winning the Senate and the Republicans winning, winning the House, and he's showing that at about 39% odds. That's, I think, probably what we're going to see. I would I would say right now I would lean towards that. Democrats control that Senate and Republicans take the House. That lines up with history. You know, there have only been three examples since 1900 when the president's party picked up seats in a midterm election. One was during the Great Depression. FDR got the people he wanted during the Great Recession, uh, Great Depression, excuse me. The second was during the Global War on Terror in 2002. Bush picked up seats. And the third one was frankly just an issue of bad politics by the Republicans. When they impeached Clinton in 1998, people didn't like that, and he picked up about five seats in the House. So I think it is exceedingly unlikely that the Democrats will actually pick up seats. I do think we're going to see a divided Congress going forward, and I think that's great news. More importantly, it takes one more potential negative driver off the table for the market in a year that frankly just doesn't need any more unwelcome news. Large levels of certainty about what's going to happen in this election is a good thing. So if we can continue to see improvement in inflation and Taiwan and China doesn't boil over, I actually think this is yet another good sign that the market on the back half of this year should be pretty positive. So we've all learned that. With that, we'll end it. As always, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to give us a call, 515-273-1333. Look forward to talking with you and hope you have a great week. Thank you so much. Take care. Securities offered through Arate Wealth Management, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, NFA. Investment advisory services offered through Arate Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment firm.